Hi, everybody. How's it going? My name is Evan. Um, and for those of you that don't know me, I've been on staff at SCUM for about a year and a half now. Uh, Mike brought me on primarily to teach, uh, to co-teach actually a set of classes that SCUM offers to anybody who's interested, classes on theology, uh, the Bible, how to read the Bible, how to connect with God. So we do these kind of all throughout the year. Um, probably be starting one up again in the fall. So that's my primary role here at SCUM. But uh, Mike asked me a few weeks ago if I could preach, and uh, I'm really excited to do that. So I'd say thank you, but most of you have absolutely no say whatsoever in who gets to preach and who doesn't. So um, anyway, if, if you're a guest with us, let me just kind of explain what we're doing. I don't know why I put a chair here. That's a dangerous booby trap. Um, let me explain what we're doing because it's a little bit different than normal. Um, so in the summers, it's scum. Uh, things, we kind of roll a little bit different. And normally we preach expositorily, so we just preach through books of the Bible. That's all we do throughout the year. But the summers are a little goofy for us. They're a little different. So uh, we, we kind of do topical things. And this summer we're doing a series called Hot Topics. I hate that name. I've never told Mike that. I just reminds me of that store, you know, in the mall. Um, but it's called Hot Topics, and it's basically just about... Uh, different hot-button issues in evangelical Christianity. So uh, we're preaching through that, uh, and basically the goal is just to, to start to try and realize how to think biblically about some of these hot topics. Um, and what I mean by think biblically is it, it's gone. We believe that the Bible is uh, the Word of God. It's the authority over matters of life and faith. So what do the Scriptures say to these different topics that we have uh, that's that's really all we're trying to do in this series. So, again, if you're a guest, that's what we're doing tonight. Uh, and if if you are a regular here, you can put your iPhones away now. Uh, and we'll get started. W words with friends will be there when you return. It's a good game. Uh, so the topic tonight is, it's a difficult one. Um, it wouldn't be a hot topic if not. In fact, it's... Uh, really a lot of people's number one objection to the Christian faith, the reason they don't want to be in the Christian faith. And the, the topic tonight is the exclusivity of Christianity. So religious exclusivity states that there's only one true religion, right? So only one path leads to God. And in historical Orthodox Christianity, what we profess uh, as, at a, as a church here at SCUM is that um, excuse me, Jesus Christ is the only way to have a relationship with God. The only way to have eternal life is through Jesus. No other way. No other religion is going to get you there. No other path is going to get you there. That's what uh, the exclusivity of Christianity is all about. So uh, when I first started thinking about how I was going to approach the sermon, I thought, you know, maybe we'll, maybe we'll just talk through and give, like, this whole apologetic for whether or not Christianity actually says this. And then I thought it kind of would be like watching the movie Titanic, uh, you know, you, you kind of know how it's going to end, right, when you're watching it. There's, there's only a few of us that were surprised that the boat sank. <laughs> yeah, some, just a couple of us were like, oh, what a terrible ending. <laughs> Leo. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get fired. Um, but then I, you know, yeah, I thought, okay, I'm a Christian, you know, minister. We're at a church that preaches and teaches through the Word of God. So it's really no surprise that Jesus makes this claim, uh, that Christianity is exclusive. So in, instead of, in, instead of uh, 
talking about, you know, whether or not Christianity actually teaches this, I just want to talk through how, how we might start to think about this claim, this exclusive claim that Christ makes. Uh, how do we handle it? Because it bothers us sometimes, right? I mean, I've never liked most exclusive groups. Um, most of this is reason is because I suck at sports. And so uh, middle school kind of through middle of college, it was just kind of a bad time uh, with me getting into groups. Uh, and and I, I was rejected from those groups because I wasn't good enough, right? So there's this kind of rejection and I'm feeling left out. So, uh, so what do we say about Jesus making exclusive claims? Um, is it the same? Are we leaving people out? Is it too narrow? Is it... Uh, is it terribly narrow and constricting to affirm that Jesus says he's the only way to God? So this is a big topic. Uh, it's a big question. We could have a whole series on this really easily. Um, we're not going to answer every single question you have about this topic, but uh, I have a lot more, a lot more modest goal. Uh, so w- what I want to do is just begin to understand how we might think about the exclusive claims that Jesus Christ made. So how did Christ, just kind of think about this question, how did Christ bring good news if he says nobody gets to the Father but through me? How is that good news? Um, and we're going to think about this topic through really two different perspective, uh, perspectives. Excuse me. Uh, first, we're going to think about it philosophically, and then we're going to think about it biblically. Um, we're going to look at that specific claim that Christ made. And here's kind of an outline for the three of you that are left-brained in the room, if you want to take detailed notes, right? We're just, we're going to try and make this point, uh, how we ought to think about the claims that Christ made, um, just through three points. I'm going to say that first, we don't have to be skittish about it, about the exclusive claims of Christ. Okay. We don't have to be skittish about it. That is, we don't have to be embarrassed or we don't have to be shy. Um, second, I'm going to talk about why we can't be a snob. We can't be a snob about having the having the truth. And then third, I want you to understand that if you ever want to think about this topic in the right light, uh, you've got to see the Savior for who he really is. And hopefully through these three points, we can kind of understand how we think about the exclusive claims of Christ for what they really are. Um, not bad news, but good news. So we do have a passage. I don't know. I emailed the... Oh, nice. Thanks. I emailed the PowerPoint person like 10 minutes ago. So I'm surprised. That's up there. Uh, so our passage tonight is John 14, um, chapters 1 through 7. We're going to spend most of our time in verse 6, kind of dissecting that. So if you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen behind me. Um, so let me explain the context of the passage real quickly. Uh, so the, the Gospel of John is an interesting book. Uh, the first 12 chapters pretty much focus... Uh, exclusively on the public ministry of Jesus. So Jesus is wandering around Jerusalem, uh, doing miracles, doing awesome stuff, having wonderful conversations with people. And this is all recorded in chapters 1 through 12. And then in chapter 13, we've got a switch. And it switches from Jesus' public life to Jesus in private life. So uh, chapter 13, it, it switches. In the beginning of the chapter, tells us it's right before the feast of the Passover. And Christ is with his disciples. He's alone. He's talking to them in private. And he's basically comforting them, right? So Jesus knows he's about to be arrested and killed. He knows what's coming. He's been talking about this, however covertly um, and sometimes very overtly. And the disciples are troubled. Right, so there's this tension. You can kind of think about this tension in the room, and you can—I mean—you can feel for these guys, right? They—they 
they left everything that they knew to follow Jesus. So, you know, they're, they're kind of standing there going, I already sold my boat. Like, I can't fish anymore. Like, what the, why did you, why are you leaving? Um, that was not a good joke, I guess. Not a good joke. Uh. So at, at the start of the passage, um, chapter 14, verse 1, we see Jesus talking uh, and answering the question that Peter asks in verse 13. And Peter says, Lord, where are you going? So Jesus answers, uh, again, this is chapter 14, verse 1, which is, okay. Uh, verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. So Jesus explains that he's going to his Father's house. He's going to go and prepare a place for his disciples, and that they're eventually going to get to join him. Uh, And then he tells them, you know, I'm departing uh, to this place, and you know the way to get there. And then in verse 5, Thomas responds with this statement. This guy's just being honest. You know, he's nervous. He doesn't really understand what's going on. Uh, Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, so how can we know the way? So again, this is, he uses the plural, the we. He's, he's saying, all the disciples, we have no clue what you're talking about. So what, what are you saying, Jesus? You need to be a little more, a little less ambiguous, I guess, a little more clear. And Christ responds to him in uh, verse 6, and he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So let that just kind of sit and kind of set a tone. We're going we're gonna to come back to that in a bit. So I told you that uh, we, we try and make the point that you don't have to be skittish about your Christian beliefs. Uh, and, and I'd say the biggest challenge to religious exclusivity is something called religious pluralism. Uh, whether or not you are familiar with that phrase, uh, you've heard this term before. Religious pluralism states that in the end, all religions lead to God. So all religions lead to God or ultimate salvation or uh, you know, ultimate reality, whatever the spiritual goal is. It's kind of a different strokes for different folks sort of mentality. And the reason we've got to look at religious pluralism is because it's, it's the pluralist. I'm sure a lot of you ran into this. It's the pluralist who says, you Christians, you're terrible people. You're intolerant and you're narrow-minded and you're bigoted. You have all these beliefs that limit everybody and that narrow down the group. And you're just a jerk. And initially, you know, if you think about the religious pluralist claim that all religions lead to God, nobody has to pick just one path. I mean, it's an initially very attractive option, right? Um, It's like, did you ever ask somebody on a date just because they were attractive or accept a date offer because someone was attractive? And you know, they like they look really nice on the outside, and you you say yes based on kind of some shallow points, and then like three minutes into dinner, they like throw hot coffee on a waiter, you know, because they weren't enough breadsticks or something like crazy. And you know, you just kind of realize like, oh, this is not what I thought. So that's actually a terrible illustration. Religious pluralism is not really like that at all. But um, it's it's initially attractive, right? It's initially attractive. So let's talk through it. Um, two things first. We've got we've to explain uh, two major camps in religious pluralism. We're going to talk through those. And so you, you have what's sometimes called sophisticated religious pluralism. 
and then what's called unsophisticated religious pluralism. We're just going to call them fancy and not fancy. I'm going to keep it real simple. So unfancy religious pluralism, we'll take them in reverse order. Unfancy religious pluralism is it's not really difficult to, uh, to talk about, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. If You've all heard this, again, just like you've all heard some of the other claims, because this is what Oprah says. Okay, Oprah says... He's, yeah, there you go. Okay. Oprah could be somebody else. Maybe I know somebody named Oprah. And it's not a celebrity figure. She'll have me killed after this. Uh, an Oprah-like figure says, all religions lead to God because all religions teach the same thing. Hmm. So that's a, that's a really cute, uh, but it's a really ridiculous idea. Because it, it works so long as you don't try and do anything like read a book or, or talk to anybody from a different religious perspective, right? It, it, I'll, just, I'll be blunt and then we're going to move on. This, this idea, all religions are true because they all teach the same thing, is birthed out of nothing other than an ignorance of what the world religions teach. Okay. Anybody who took the Buddha or attended the Buddha and Beer Bible study, probably butchered that title, but something like that. You know this, right? You've gone over what the religions, the different religions of the world teach. They don't teach the same thing. So just one concrete example. Who is Jesus? Son of God. Okay, Christians in the room are going to say Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah. He came and he took sins away. Uh, and so he saved all people who would believe in him, right? Islam, Judaism, they don't believe that. Okay, they think Jesus was, he's a neat guy, he's a good teacher, he's a, a, a fantastic fellow, but he's not the savior of the world. So there's about four million of these kind of examples. The, the religions of the world don't teach the same thing, right? Um, they claim different things are true. They make contradictory claims. So just don't buy this one for a second. Don't let anybody tell you all religions teach the same thing because they don't. So that was the easy one. Let's get into fancy religious pluralism. Uh, and this is where I really want to make the point that we don't have to be skittish. I'm rubbing my head a lot like Josh Cook used to do. I don't know why. He mentored me for a short amount of time. So maybe, yeah, uh, yeah. now I'm going to go bald. So. And Josh Cook is going to kill me now. I love you, Josh. Um, so, fancy religious pluralism, stay with me, argues that all religious paths lead to God because all religions are, in fact, false. However, they're all effective. So that might sound weird, um, and it probably does, probably makes no sense, but let me give you a common illustration, and uh, it's, it's, I promise you'll understand. So, um, this is often illustrated with uh, the parable of the elephant and the blind men. Anybody's ever heard this? So the parable goes like this, and the religious pluralist will use this to explain why you as a Christian are wrong and arrogant and, and stupid. Um, so there's an elephant just chilling in a field. Parking lot. Let's say parking lot, because that's what I have in my notes. It'll throw me off. Elephant's just chilling in a parking lot. Don't know how it got there. Uh, and then three blind guys come up to the elephant, and they start feeling around and then trying to explain what it is they're touching. So I don't know how the blind men found the elephant, especially all at the same time. It seems like a pretty outrageous coincidence. But um, 
So the first blind guy, he's, he's at the back of the elephant. He's, he's got the tail, right? So he's saying, you know, the elephant is kind of like a snake. It's, it's long and it's wiry and it's got, I, don't, I can't explain the fuzz on the end, but it, it's like a snake. I'm going to say it's like a snake. And, and the second blind man is thinking, this guy's a moron. The elephant is like a wall, right? Because he's on the side of the elephant, feeling around. So he said, it's like a wall. It's nothing like a snake. Well, the third guy says, both you people are stupid. The elephant, it's like a tree trunk, because he's got his legs around, or his arm, arm and legs, around one of the elephant's legs. <laughs> he's a, he's a, never mind. Uh, <laughs> so each of the men is feeling a part of the elephant, right? But because they only have a part of it, they can't explain it fully. And this is what all the religions of the world are doing, says the narrator of the parable. So do you get it? I mean, this is what most religious pluralists argue. They say that all religions know a little bit of truth about God, but none of them know the whole truth. Each religion has a part of the truth, but it can't adequately explain God. And furthermore, if you, if you claim to know, if you make any kind of claims about what the elephant is like, you're arrogant and you're narrow. Okay, you can't make these absolute claims. I, however, says the pluralist, am inclusive and I'm loving because I accept all people. Right? I don't make absolute claims about the elephant like you do. I don't narrow people down. But here's the catch. The only way the narrator knows that the blind men are grabbing at the same elephant is because the narrator isn't blind. over there. Okay, they're, they're, the narrator here is claiming to see and understand exactly what it is the religions of the world aren't supposed to see and understand. Right? They're claiming to have this superior, comprehensive knowledge about spiritual reality. And then they say no religion can have a comprehensive understanding about spiritual reality. That'd be arrogant. So they're making these the very kind of claims that they're criticizing. Okay, they're making absolute statements about religion. So listen, all people sooner or later claim that some ideas are true and other ideas are false. Okay, and in that way, all people are exclusive. The narrator of this parable just made a religious truth claim that disagrees with the majority of the world. And so if, if it's arrogant and intolerant to hold a religious belief that is rejected by other people because it implies that some things are true and other things are false, then it follows that the religious pluralist is arrogant and intolerant. Right? So here's, here's why we don't have to be skittish about holding on to beliefs that we believe are true. All people, sooner or later, have convictions about what they believe to be true, what they think is right, and everybody thinks that, you know, if the rest of the world just believed how I would believe, then we'd all be much better off. So this argument that the pluralist makes against you as a Christian that says you're arrogant, you're making claims to know what the elephant's like, you're totally wrong, it just doesn't hold any water. It's a total sham. So just, again, I make that point. Just realize you're not arrogant, you're not intolerant just because you have convictions about what you believe to be true. Everybody does. Everybody makes those claims. So it's not really a matter of 
who has convictions and who doesn't, but instead a matter of how you hold on to those convictions. Okay, the word tolerance presupposes disagreement. Okay, you can't, tolerance doesn't describe the person who disagrees with somebody else. It describes how somebody disagrees with somebody else. So just don't buy any of this junk that you're arrogant and you're intolerant just because you have convictions about what you believe to be true. I hope that makes sense. So you can have truth, uh, you can know truth, and that doesn't necessarily mean you're arrogant and intolerant. You can't, you could be, sure, you could act that way, but uh, that's where we're going next. I think Christianity, if, if rightly understood, doesn't allow you to be anything but humble. So you can't be a snob about your beliefs. That's the second point. Squeeze bottle. It's very nice. Um, so why not? Why can't you be a snob? If, if we say that we alone have the truth as Christians, why, why doesn't that make us strut around and think, you know, I'm better than you. I've got the truth and you don't. So I'm in a better spot or I'm better than you as a person. Um, in order to answer this, we need to go uh, back to what Jesus said in the passage that we're studying. So where did Jesus say he's going and how does he say that we get there? Those are the two things we're going to look at right now. So destination and directions. So what's the significance of the destination? Um, is anything really said about the, what, what's the destination, first off? Heaven, right, the Father's house. Jesus says, I'm going to the Father's house. So, and, but nothing's really said about the nature of this place. Jesus doesn't say that it's covered with diamonds and gold and chinchilla fur or anything. Anything like, it's super fancy, right? He doesn't make any claims about the nature of the place. Instead, in this text... The significance of the Father's house is rooted in the fact that the Father lives there. So Jesus says that this is where he's going. He's going to the Father's house. He's going into the presence of God. So he promises also to bring the disciples into the presence of God, into relationship with God, to have intimacy with God. So the destination isn't so much a place as it is a presence, a relationship. And what about the directions we're given? How do we get to the presence of God? And this, this is what's totally different about Christianity. I'll say this phrase a couple of times tonight, but if you don't hear anything else, just hear this one point. If, if we take Jesus' words seriously, I think we're going to find that he's saying something just utterly unique, totally different, especially totally different than most people think what he's saying. That made no sense. You get my point. So when the disciples ask, how do we get to where you're going? You're going to the Father's house. How do we get there? Jesus doesn't hand the disciples a set of directions. He says, I am the way. I am the way. Me. So he, he responds to this question of how do we get there? How do, I, how do I get into the Father's house? Not by offering directions or instructions that you have to follow or giving you a roadmap and saying, good luck. I hope you have what it takes to you know, find the X, but he offers himself. So what does this mean? N none of this, well, none of what I'm going to say is going to make any sense to you if you don't understand this one point. The difference between what Jesus says here and what religion says, as most people understand it, is that religious, religion excuse me, tells us that the way is a set of directions to follow. 
Okay? Don't watch bad movies. Don't cuss. Don't smoke. Don't have sex before you're married. Uh, give a bunch of money to people who need money. Go to church regularly. That's, that's what religion says. So follow these directions and God will accept you. It's intrinsically moralistic. So do this and don't do this. Do this and don't do this. But the gospel, what Jesus says in this passage, is totally different. He says that the way is not a set of directions, but it's just to follow Christ himself. Okay, so Jesus alone connects human beings with God. Jesus alone brings you into the Father's house. You don't do it. The, the point he's making, you don't do it. You can't do it. You can't get there on your own, right? And, and when you realize this, I think you start to kind of break down that thing in you that becomes a snob about having the truth. You realize Christ didn't come and give me a bunch of stuff to do. Christ came and he gave me himself. And he said, I am the way, me. Just believe in me. That's all you have to do. So if, if your acceptance into Christianity is based on your ability or your strength or your achievements, you're eventually going to turn into a snob. I'll just spoil the ending for you there. Why? Because it leads you f- into this place where you feel superior about other people. Because you think, I made it in. I, you know, I have what it takes. I'm spiritually successful. I'm morally superior. I have what it takes. And other people don't. People that are out, they don't have what it takes. It's so many people, and, and I think Christians included, think that this is how Christianity operates. That if you, if you achieve, if you're good enough, then you're in. Be good enough, and you get to stay in. Okay? You get to keep hanging out in the Father's house. But this is not what Jesus says at all. Perfect example of, of this concept. So my wife and I are um, house-sitting at the Spire. A lot of you probably don't know what that is, uh, but it's a luxury high-rise condo apartment residence thing in downtown. It's like smack in the middle of everything. It's super fancy. You have to have all kind of key fobs and stuff to get in the door. Um, and so we, we got asked to house it here, and so we just got handed the keys, and we're residents uh, just for about 10 days, but still. Um, so I, I've been around there enough. We, we've been there like eight days or so now. Um, I've been around there enough to notice that some of the folks who live there really think they're the business. Okay, they're the, the bee's knees, as your grandma used to say. So they, you know, and why? Because they, they're fancy, right? They, they achieved in life, and so they, they can afford this fancy high-rise luxury apartment. So they're in this in-crowd, they're in this in-group, and this can cause them, which we've seen a little bit, not, again, not everybody who's there, but they can, they can do stuff like uh, talk down to the folks that work there, right? Because the people that work there don't live there. They're, they're just schlumping at work in there. So it causes some of these folks to talk down to people like the front desk folks or the people taking the trash out or the people cleaning the pool. So how odd would it be if I adopted that same kind of mentality? Right. How strange would it be if I started talking smack to the guy taking the garbage out? And ironically, most of the time that I've lived in Denver, I've been a janitor part-time. So. so there's, you know, I didn't achieve, I didn't earn my place in this fancy apartment complex. So if, if now 
having keys just given to me, I, I take on this air of like, I'm awesome and I'm going to start talking down to everybody. It's completely ridiculous, right? It's the same reason that you, you just really couldn't stand that kid in high school that like had a Porsche. Everybody had one of those kids, right, who had the Porsche, and they drove around like they were super awesome. And you're just thinking, you're like, you didn't, you didn't buy a Porsche. Like, your mom and dad bought you a Porsche. Like, don't, don't act like you're awesome. You're just as poor as I am. You have nothing, right? So I can't act like a snob at the Spire because I didn't earn my place there. Christianity is the exact same way. Okay, Jesus did the work. Jesus gives you the keys. Okay, you have no other choice than to just be humbled by this. You can't be a snob about it. You didn't earn it. So we'll do uh, just a couple more things, and we're going to be done. So we've got to see the Savior for who he really is. That's the third point. So we need to finish looking at this claim that Jesus makes uh, to tie this all together. He says that he is the way. How is he the way? He tells us he's the truth and the life. So what does he mean? I am the truth. So you've you've got to read this one at face value here. Notice Jesus doesn't make the claim that he points to the truth. He says that he is the truth. And this is totally different from other religions. Other religious founders came and they say, I know the way to the truth. I know what truth is. But Christ comes and he says, I am the truth. So it's different. So what does he mean? Uh, In the first chapter of John, we find a bit of a prologue. You can turn there or it'll be up behind me. Uh, And this this kind of serves as the background for the whole book and especially this claim that Christ makes. So read with me chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the word. So John uses his title word to explain that this is the expression of God. So John moves on to say that uh, the Word was with God and the Word was God. So John affirms that the Word was God, this expression was God. And skip down to verse 14. This is where it is. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this is the way that God chose to communicate himself to humanity. Right? God became flesh and he dwelt among us. Absolute truth came to us. So the words and actions of Jesus are the very words and actions of a perfect and holy God. So what Christ says and does is effective because of who he is. He's the truth. Right? That's why we can count on Christ. That's why we can read this with any real validity. I always mess that word up, so glad I got it. Validity. I just killed any reverence that we had going. Sorry. Yes. So truth, then, is, it's not just this cold set of philosophical propositions that you think about, right? Truth now is a person. Truth is somebody that you can enter into relationship with. Truth is somebody who can love you, somebody that you can love back. Truth has become... Jesus, right? Jesus is absolute truth, personified, God. Um, You've all heard the verse, and the what shall set you free? Truth, right? He said, Jesus says this in chapter 8. He says, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You ever think about it this way? 
Then Jesus goes on just right here in, in chapter 14 to call himself the truth. So know the truth and the truth will set you free. Know me and I will set you free. Right? Truth came to us. God came to us. So why did he do that? Why did God come? It's the last point. I am the life. So Christ is the way. He says, I'm the way. I will connect you with God. You can be in a relationship with God through me. I'm the truth. I am God. What I say is effective. What I say is true. And I am the life. So all throughout the scriptures, we're told over and over again that human beings are in a place where we're spiritually dead. This is not probably a super surprise to most of us in, the, in this room. Um, we've rebelled against God. We've chosen our own way over God's way. We've chosen to sin. And this sin is called separation from God. And the sin is so bad, right? This, this sin runs so deep that we can't fix it on our own. There's nothing we can do to have life on our own. God is perfect, so anything less than a perfect life just doesn't cut it. But Christ came and he said, I am the life. Believe in me. So for the Christian, true life, eternal life, doesn't come through living in a certain way. It comes because Jesus lived in a certain way. So he died on the cross, he took away our sin, and in turn he gave us life. He gave life to all who would believe in him. So what, what does this have to do with your topic, Evan? Some of you are thinking that. It's only in the light of seeing the Savior. It's only in the light of us knowing who Christ is that this statement, no one comes to the Father except through me, doesn't have to be terrifying. But it can be welcoming. If you don't understand, if you don't see the Savior for who he is, you're never, you're, this statement is never going to be good news. Why? Because if Christ came to give us a set of directions and you have to achieve in order to be included in the group, then he's a tyrant. But he's not. He's a liberator. He says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I bring these things. I come to you. I bridge the gap. I come to you and I do this. Just believe in me. Just trust me. Be in relationship with me. You don't earn it. It's, it's the only group where the weakest are welcome to come and find acceptance. And really, you can't come unless you're weak. You can't come unless you're humble. Any other attitude other than the one that says, God, I'm not good enough, I know I'm not good enough, but you are, isn't going to cut it. That's not what we're called to. God gives grace to the humble. So this claim that Christ make, makes, no one comes to the Father except through me, it doesn't have to be feared. It doesn't have to be thought of as elitist because he didn't come to give you a burden. He didn't come to accept the good people and reject the bad people. He came to give life. God came and in Christ he provided everything we need to be in relationship with God and to stay in relationship with God. You don't earn your way in and you don't earn your keep either. 
This is something we screw up all the time as Christians, right? We say, oh, I know I need Jesus to get into heaven. But we completely deny the fact that the gospel works all throughout our life. Christ keeps us in relationship with the Father. So if, if we've, we've got to think of exclusivity in this way, okay, this claim that Christ makes. We've got to think in this way. The offer of Jesus is the way to eternal life is for all people. Nobody has to earn it. Nobody has to find the way or walk the road themselves relying on their own smarts or their own strength to get down it. Okay, nobody has to hope they have what it takes. And it's in this way that the exclusive claim that Christ makes is the most inclusive type. It's the one where the weakest are welcome to come. The offer is for all people. The offer is for anybody. If you can see the Savior, it won't make you a snob. It'll make you humble because you know you can't earn it. And if you can see the Savior, it won't make you skittish. It'll make you bold. You won't fear him. You won't fear telling other people about what you believe because it's not bad news. So if, if you're a Christian, see the Savior and, and be the boldest, most humble, most inviting, loving, servant-like person because you know that the relationship with God is it's an offer for everyone. And when you're asked to talk about your faith or you, you know, get into conversations about your faith, share out of this place, right? Share out of this truth. That Christ is the way and the truth and the life. Just believe in him. There's no work to be done. Just believe in him. And if you're not a Christian, I invite you to see the Savior. Take a look at what Jesus said about himself. He didn't come to give you a burden. He didn't give you a set of directions. He just said, come to me. Believe in me. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we come to you and we just thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. And uh, God, we confess that we need you. We've got to have you. We can't bridge the gap on our own. We can't get to you on our own, but you come to us, and all we have to do is believe, and we thank you for that. And we praise your name for that, Father. Thank you for the mercy and the grace and the love that you have for us, that you came to get us. You came to save us. In Christ's name, amen.